Welcome to the Toughness Podcast. I'm your host, Paddy Steinfurt, and today in the fourth episode of our Hot Topic special series where we study the different types of toughness, we're going to analyze how top performers from a bunch of different backgrounds approach emotional endurance. Now, it doesn't matter if you're on a stage playing where thousands or even hundreds of thousands of people are judging you, or if you're by yourself at a trading desk on Wall Street. In both cases, a wrong move could cost millions of dollars. But it's not just people working in these high stakes environments where that can impact. Everyone has to deal with internal and external challenges in unpredictable environments in our everyday life. And it turns out that the quicker you accept the bad shit, the better. As you're going through this whole journey, you know, you're going to have a lot of battles. Some battles will win, some battles will lose. But at the end of the day, you'll win the war as long as you have the right vision, you stay resourceful, you grind and stay strong enough long enough. Time and that's a big hit for the 34 of Jesse Awuji. Egypt, the country is bracing for more violence, says Margaret Coker, our person in Cairo. Margaret, good morning. You could walk out of the door every day not knowing whether you would see your husband again or see your children again. That uncertainty is a killer. It makes you lose weight, it makes your hair go gray, it makes your physiological reaction so extreme that it's hard for you when life is normal to return back to that normal. isn't that the beast so damn that's just the name of the game. Your mental capacity and strength at those really heated moments when you only get six dives to do is everything. Now, if we start off thinking about extreme scenarios where it's crucial to have your emotions in check, war and combat definitely come to mind. In the past, we've had a lot of special ops and soldiers on our show. And yes, they go through extreme training drills to prepare for those environments. But how does war affect a normal civilian? In any conflict, there are people just like you and me who all of a sudden can lose everything or find their lives on the line. And there are even some professionals who are drawn to that environment. Margaret Coker has had to deal with tough war scenarios since she started covering Iraq's invasion in 2003. The award-winning investigative journalist told us how she manages to hang in there and go out of her comfort zone despite being an introverted person. I think part of that skill set comes with um, me having to mentally toughen up just every morning to, to talk to strangers. Uh, so that's already part of my daily routine. And then when you get into a situation, I mean, I mean, again, to be clear, like, you know, I, I would have... Um, I would be based in in countries that are unstable and and where conflict reigned. But I also have lived in in pretty um, pretty stable environments as well. You know, having a nice villa in Dubai or you know life in in London. So you know, I, after this over this twenty year period, I, I wasn't um, I wasn't totally totally you know out um, in in the wilds. But having yeah. said that as well. Um, I wasn't someone who would take assignments um, willy-nilly, you know, on on the front line. I wasn't. Um, I have been embedded with, uh, you know, U.S. U.S. forces, U.S. Marines, um, combat units who were doing frontline um, fighting. But really, I think the most the the most like, the most mentally tough times that that I've been in conflict zones are actually the waiting, the waiting for something to happen. Because I think the dirty little secret that we don't actually comprehend very much in, in a conflict is that fighting happens rarely. Um, uncertainty happens all the time. And so over a 24 hour period, you, you might have bullets flying for 30 minutes, but you have to wait it out for the other 23 hours, 30. And if you are living in Baghdad, which is a beautiful town, right? It's, it's a, one of the most, 
most ancient cities in the world, you know, former, um, former center of human civilization. It's a place that's very urbane with coffee shops and nightclubs and universities and parks. You know, it is a place where people commute into work and there's restaurants, but in a time in the mid 2000s when the um, when terrorism was at its peak, when Al Qaeda in Iraq was was terrorizing the nation and uh, Shiite militias were terrorizing the citizens of Baghdad, you could walk out of the door every day not knowing whether you would see your husband again or see your children again because of the random violence that was happening due to terrorism. So firefights are one thing, but random violence is another thing. And that is really the tool that, that breaks apart um, a social fabric and can also break you apart mentally because that uncertainty will, is, is a killer. Um, it, it makes you lose weight. It makes your hair go gray. It makes you... Um, it makes your physiological reaction so extreme that it's hard for you when life is normal to return back to that normal. And I have friends in Baghdad who, who lost their parents um, and lost their loved ones because, and they never, they never returned home one day from work. And that was the routine way of life for a very long time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I say, yeah, but really I'm, I'm like, I can't, I can't imagine that level of uncertainty. I live in, right. As we all do, we live in COVID times. I also do work with people who live in incredible high-stress environments and there's always high stakes online every day at work and there's always uncertainty. But what you've just described there is another level that unless you've been there, it's very hard to actually, it's like you can read from a menu, but unless you've tasted the dish, you don't really know what you're reading, right? And I'm curious that having eaten from that dish regularly, maybe not all the time, as you said, but you've been there, and lived with that uncertainty of maybe I don't see my husband again or when are the bullets going to fly today? What skills did you develop? What coping strategies did you develop to handle that constant level of uncertainty? Not the like extreme, oh, my God, we could die right now, as you said, but the three on the threat scale, but it's always a three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you learn how to be decisive. You you stop um, equivocating. You you say um, there's threat outside. You know, just a, a very simple sort of day in my life. Let's say you know we're in the mid two thousands in Baghdad, and it is this level of of threat where random violence is happening and. You're, you're probably not going to be targeted as a person, but you might end up at the wrong place at the wrong time and a bomb goes off and you die. So you have to make a decision. I, you know, I've got work to do. I've got to go outside. I've got three people I need to interview. And um, you get the best intelligence possible. You know, is that, is that um, intersection clear? Is there some, um, you know, is there a high value target uh, or in, a VIP who lives next to the place that you're going to um, go in order to do your, your interview? You say, how important is that interview? How, how, what is, what's the actual risk and reward factor every day? Um, should I go out to dinner tonight or not? And you learn to live with your decisions, right? You learn to say, um, I can't be scared. The risk is there and I've got to live. And so you start to create a pattern of, of decision-making, I think that helps in back in normal life in America, right? There's, you can be paralyzed by your choices. You can be paralyzed by fear. And sometimes you just have to say, I can only do so much and I'm gonna, I'm gonna live my life today. And tomorrow I'll, I'll take a step back, but I think that for now the risk is worthwhile um, for what I need to accomplish. And you also start to, um, you stop taking things for granted. 
right? There's not a day that goes by where I don't tell my husband that I love him. Um, I don't put it off. Um, if, if, um, if I feel like, you know, I need to say something to my mother, I write her a quick text or, you know, I, I phone her. I don't say I can wait until next week. And that's part of being decisive. It's, it's, it's part about, you know, living in the present. And it's also part of not taking your, your life and your blessings um, for granted. Yeah. I mean, a couple of great lessons there of, Firstly, well, secondly, as you said, they're not taking things for granted, being grateful and, and having keeping perspective. But the first part is really interesting to me in terms of the risk calculus almost, I might put it, where you're able to say um, there is a certain level of risk, but the decisions can't, but there's no such thing as a perfect decision with full knowledge. And my ability, our ability to move into an uncertain situation, assess the risks that need to be assessed, get whatever information is possible, but not wait extra time so you can get more info, right? You're, today right. is today and I've got to go do what I've got to do today. Right, um, right. Is there, and, a, do you have an example well. where, oh. oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say that has served me well, you know, during this pandemic, right? I mean, there's there's a lot of people in my neighborhood who who feel like, you know, life has come to a standstill. Everything that they're used to um, is, is now, um, now could be possibly a life or death situation for them. And they, um, they, you know, my neighbors have been amazed at my decisiveness. You know, it's again, it's not recklessness. It really is just being able to take a, an amount of information, assess it quickly and say, um, this is worthwhile and, and have the confidence to, to say, to know when you have enough information and make that decision and, and move forward. As we can hear from Margaret's story, sometimes it's not the action that we're involved in or that's in front of us that causes us problems. In some instances, it's the waiting that kills us. And it's not uncommon in other arenas to have scenarios where it's the unseen things that can actually be a problem. Keeping our eyes stuck in the rearview mirror, as an example, or looking to the side of us can take our focus away from what matters, which is what's in front of us. And that's definitely the case for Jesse Awuji, a Navy Reserve Lieutenant, but also a NASCAR driver. And whether he was on duty working in military countermeasures or driving cars around a track at 200 miles an hour, the most important thing he's found is that he needs to endure the discomfort, stay present in the process, and keep moving forward at the same time. I remember that uh, setbacks are setups for phenomenal comebacks. So with that being said, what I do is when setbacks are happening, I start like, you know, at first naturally as a human being, you know, you get upset. You're like, oh my God, what's going on? How am I going to get through this? But then I remember, okay, these setbacks are setups for comebacks, like phenomenal comebacks. So even though these setbacks are happening right now, the phenomenal comeback is coming up soon. Something really good is coming up soon. So now that comes, that, that a whole part of staying strong enough, long enough comes into effect. Okay, get through it. Because a lot of times when people start going through these setbacks, they don't think about, the comeback that's about to happen on the back end of it. And all of a sudden they quit in the middle of it. So they never even got there. And then at the end of it, when they tell people the story of why they quit, they're like, oh yeah, you know, this happened, this happened, this happened. I lost all this. I lost that. I lost my whatever. And, and that's when I had to call it quits. Not realizing that even though they were losing this and losing that and losing the battle, it didn't mean that the war was lost. It just mean the battles were just not going their way. But the win, like the end of the war was coming. It's just you had to stay strong enough, long enough to get to the end. You cannot quit in the middle of the process. It'd be like turning off your washing machine 
right when it hits a moment where it's pausing for a bit during a watch, all of a sudden your stuff is still wet. Like, why'd you quit? Like, just let it go through the whole process. It's going to get to the end. That's a great analogy. Very simple analogy, but it's one all of us have done, I'm sure, have pulled out the washing too early. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or the dryer, the dryer well, too. Actually, dryer is even more because, the worst. yeah, they're like, oh, because you think it's abundant. You're like, oh, yeah, no, it's, it's all hot in there. It's all good. And then, it, but it's not like just let it go through the and process. And then you pull it out and it's like kind of a bit damp. You're like, oh, yeah. is that enough? Do I do yeah. it again? Then you hate yourself the rest of life because you're like, oh, my gosh, it smells <laughs> like crap. It feels like crap. Why didn't I just wait? You know, why didn't I just wait another 10 minutes? All it was going to uh, be was 10 minutes. 10 minutes. And at least on a dryer, you can see the timer on this life <laughs> journey. You can't see that timer so that's the faith part the faith that the timer is it's you're gonna get there just to stay with it and people ask how long are you supposed to stay with it how many you know and I'm, I'm like as long as necessary okay how many reps do i gotta do as many as necessary okay how much money do i need to find as much as you can like there's no number you just keep going like that's the thing like there is no finite number just keep going yeah when i was a professional athlete many many years ago i had a mentor who I was talking to him like, you know, how many, what should my stats be? What's, what's going to make sure that I get it? And he's like, you leave it beyond doubt. You don't get the number. You double the number. Like just leave them with no doubt, no excuses, no room for error. And that I'll circle back to that funding thing that I think you hinted at there a second ago. I'm interested though, you mentioned the setbacks, the setups, the phenomenal comebacks. What's the biggest setback you've had so far? There may be more in the future, but so far, what have you, where has that actually come true for you? It's turned into a comeback. Yeah. So some of my biggest setbacks, well, on the funding side, I've definitely had setbacks there. <laughs> and I, I, I would say on, on that side of it, there's been times throughout this journey, a couple of times where, you know, I completely ran out of funding, completely ran out of money, didn't have anything else left to go, had no clue of how I was going to get through the rest of the season, through the rest of the year, or even go into next, the following year. Like I had no clue because I literally had nothing. I was like in the hole, sometimes thousands of dollars in the hole. But once again, I didn't quit because a lot of these times I was in such bad shape that most people, majority, 99% of people would have quit. And I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. I, I decided, you know what? Like, once again, this is a setback. Like, the comeback is coming. I stayed with it. But because I had always been, you know, grinding hard, networking right, working hard, like all that energy I was putting into this whole thing, eventually it was going to give back. So, you know, outside of racing, you know, I started some businesses. One of my businesses is where I host drag racing events. And these events, you know, invite people to the track, spectators come, people come race their cars, and I'm able to make money off of all the ticket sales. Well, I had an upcoming event at one point right after one of these huge setbacks where I ran out of racing money. I had nothing. Um, I had one of these events coming up and it actually made enough money to cover what I need to cover to get through the rest of the year. And it's, once again, it's because I stayed strong and I could have quit. I could have quit on the racing and been like, you know what? I can't do this anymore. I don't have anything else. But I didn't. I stayed with it. And eventually that camp, that comeback came like literally right when I needed it, which was right when I had nothing else left. <laughs> it came. But I didn't quit. I let the whole thing play through and we got through it. That's a, that's a great, awesome, real I'm sure there are many people listening who have been in a similar situation where it's like, I just got to hang on one more day, right? One more event. You've used a bit of language there that I want to touch on that, that references, I think, a mindset that I assume you develop in training at the, at the Naval Academy where you said, you know, you may not win the battle, but you can still win the war, being able to continue your campaign. So a lot of language there around what is military and, and war language. How much of your training 
your time in the Navy carries over to the way you approach maybe not just NASCAR, but your life now? Like how much did that inform your approach once you even left the Navy or you're still in the reserves? But once yeah. you stopped, you went on tour, you actually served in active mm-hmm. duty. Mm-hmm. Once that was finished, how much does that play into how you go about things now? Yeah, a lot of it still plays into effect right now. Yeah, now I'm in the Navy Reserves. I was active duty for about seven years, went on two different deployments. But um, one of the first things we learned at the Navy or at the Naval Academy uh, when I first got to school there was that there's this little small book, and I can't remember how many pages it is. Very, very small, but it's called uh, Message to Garcia. And the whole thing about that book is it talks about there was a fellow, and I can't remember, in the Army, Marine Corps, I can't remember, but there was a fellow who needed to deliver a message to someone else in the middle of war or battle or something. And whoever had given this message basically gave him this message. was like, hey, this message needs to get to Garcia. And then the person who needed to deliver it, like at that point was like, you know, okay, who is Garcia? Where is Garcia? How do I get this to them? And basically who had the person who had given them the message was like, figure it out. And that was it. That was it. This person had to get this very important message to someone else and had no directions on where to go, what to do, who it was, but he had to figure it out. And that's what the book was about, was just being resourceful. Like you're not going to be given all the answers. You're not going to be given everything you need. You just got to be resourceful and figure it out. And we learned that very, very early at the Naval Academy. And that's what kind of helped me get through the beginning parts of my journey of trying to build my own business, trying to race in NASCAR was I had to just figure it out. Like life, the world isn't going to give you all the answers. Some people are going to help you. Some people are going to be there. Some people will help support, but don't expect all the answers. Expect that nothing is going to be there for you. No one's going to be there for you. Expect that you're not going to have it all. But as long as you, you can stay resourceful, you can go find the answers. You can start learning how to ask the right questions. You can learn how to build relationships. You will get the information you need. You will get the resources you need, but you just got to, you know, you got to be resourceful. And that's what that book's about. I learned so much from it. But now I'm using that resourcefulness throughout everything I do because I know once you're going through this whole journey, you know, you're going to have a lot of battles. Some battles will win, some battles will lose. But at the end of the day, you'll win the war as long as you have the right vision, you stay resourceful, you grind and stay strong enough long enough. You're listening to Toughness, a podcast where some of the world's best performers from different fields share their personal stories about pressure, stress, and success. This series of interviews is a product of the Human Performance Think Tank, with thanks to the U.S. Army and Booz Allen Hamilton. Coming up later in the show... You have to keep your emotions in check when playing. You have to accept whatever is at the poker table, so you can't control that. So you have to keep focusing on the process of things that you can control. Turning now to another arena where having a grip on your emotions is crucial, and that's World Series Poker. Oftentimes you're dealing with life-changing money on the table right in front of you, and your opponent is constantly looking for clues in your behavior that'll inform their next move. Jurrit van Hoff, a professional poker player and Dutch legend, told us how he manages to accept and work on his emotions while still trying to keep a poker face, both at the table and also in life. We'll hear at the same time from Jared Tendler, who's a sports psychologist that actually worked with number one poker players around the world, helps his clients thrive just by learning how to accept their emotions and focus on the game. Keep focusing on the things that are within your control and change what you can change and what you should change. And then do that day in, day out with grit. So have grit and do it with a poker face as well. (laughs) when you're at the tables like 
you have to keep your emotions in check when playing. So that can be tough, of course. And you have to do it in, day in, day out to hone your skills and get more experienced. And you have to accept whatever is at the poker table. Like there's a big luck factor while playing. So you can't control that. So you have to keep focusing on the process of things that you can control. Yeah, really, really cool. You mentioned three things there that are central to a lot of the answers people give. One was acceptance almost really, or, or by accepting some of them, right? Yes. Two was distance and consistency required to get really, so you can do that for two days. It doesn't going to make you one of the best in the world at what you do. And number three, which is really interesting because it kind of ties into the first one, but is very specific to this game, the term poker face is the ability to regulate your own emotions. Now, whether it's externally, they might still be raging, but you have the poker face on. Normally I ask people, what is one key mental or emotional trait of top performers in your area? This is a very important skill to be able to maintain a calm facade, even if you're going all over the place inside, right? It's, would it be fair to say that there isn't a successful poker player who can't do that? Or sorry, let me ask it the other way. Is there anyone who is very good that can't do poker face? Well, you could play poker online and you can play poker at the casinos. So ah, <laughs> online, okay. the poker face is a little less important, good as you answer. can understand. <laughs> <laughs> there are really good online poker players who have more difficulty, like maybe maintaining a poker face. But at the same time, like a poker face is sort of a metaphor for like emotional regulation and yes. even if you're playing online you'll have to keep your emotions in check maybe even more because the decisions are going way faster so whenever you lose or win a few big pots you'll have to remain focused and else you know you'll uh, self-destruct basically so yeah it's going to be difficult to not have the ability to have a distance between you and your emotions, basically. Like, I wouldn't necessarily think that, even talking from my own experience, that emotional regulation is a prerequisite. Like, I used to just be able to disconnect, I think, from my emotions. So now, at almost 40 years of age, I'm still working on becoming more emotionally regulated. It's just that in poker, it helped to be able to disconnect from my emotions and then make the decisions more like cold or calculated, as you could say. So I think being able to distance yourself from your emotions, maybe even it's happening like not so consciously, you know, it's just happening like an yeah. automatic process. I'm just like built for that. Some poker players, maybe some other poker players, they worked towards that and it's uh, something they achieved. Definitely at the highest stakes, you have to be able to distance yourself from your emotions or to use your emotions in a way that serve you in the game. So you can feel anxiety, but you can reframe it as just being energy, being aware of that, being mindful and using it as adrenaline because sometimes you have to play for 11 hours straight and adrenaline can be useful. If you think of it as anxiety, then you know it might wear you out and you might, might make a, a wrong decision based on it. Great example. I mean, I was about to say, can you give us an example of when you use an emotion as opposed to ignore it and you, you answered it at a time? So that, that's a, a really good one because this is not just to poker. You think about someone who's trying to do a negotiation in business, someone who's trying to present 
for a promotion, someone who's trying to ask someone out, there is an element of there's shit going on inside that I can't let other people see. Otherwise, it affects the outcomes that we're trying to achieve. Now, whether you actually regulate the emotions, you made a good point there. Sometimes in about regulation, some people can just disconnect. But to you, Jim, the licensed mental health counsellor, that that's probably not the most healthy way to handle things. If there's a mortgaging, some people's coping strategy is to just disconnect, just literally ignore them or just distance. And probably over time, that's not healthy, right? But there is what Jarrett, what Jarrett has described there is a, a blend of kind of distancing, but more an acceptance and then even a re-channeling. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, I think it's all about time and place and where each person is in their evolution as a, a competitor, an athlete, a poker player, a trader. I don't kind of subscribe to this kind of one fits all philosophy. I think we have to kind of meet the person where they are and what they're capable of, because if you ask too much of them, they're not going to do it. It's going to cause failure and make things worse. So yeah, I think in the long run, you know, you want to have a kind of a more integrated understanding of your emotions. And I think the, the long-term outcome that we're after really is to have your emotions be pure enough that you're not kind of imprinting your own biases and illusions into the, the competition, into the action, right? It's not that you can actually use anxiety or frustration or perhaps overconfidence or lack of confidence as signals of what's kind of going on within the game so that you can kind of modulate and make adjustments technically and tactically, not, not anything kind of mental, you know, but kind of short of that. Yeah. In the heat of battle, you do need to have some ability to either disconnect or to counteract or correct your emotions in real time. Otherwise they are going to compromise you now in the long run. So let's say after a 12 hour poker session, what are we going to do with the information that we found? What are the triggers? What were the things that caused the emotional volatility within a poker session, within a trading session, within a round of golf? Then we need to analyze that and break it down and isolate the flaws that then can be worked on because that's where the growth comes from. So, you know, in the short term, in the heat of battle, yeah, you need to do everything you can to perform at your highest level. And that sometimes will mean disconnection. Sometimes it will mean, no, I'm actually going to be more acknowledging of my emotions because as you become more integrated, you can simultaneously be aware of what's going on, correct them, and be able to adjust to that, that kind of internal process very quickly and still perform very well. To me, that's how the transformation begins to happen, right? You can't really correct mental game flaws, you know, kind of in the practice environment. It has to occur in the training environment. And I think this is perhaps what, what you may have experienced as well as a competitor for me was, okay, here are these points of failure. How can I get over the hurdle? I, I have to be able to take what I'm learning in training and apply it, you know, in those, those critical moments. And that is often what that, that process looks like. It's, it's just kind of ugly and messy where you're making these kind of incremental improvements. I like to say you're just sucking less. And then over time, you keep sucking less enough, you're going to be pretty great. Another field where people need to make calculated gambles and also where you can lose money really, really quick is the stock market. If we think about Wall Street and traders around the world, we often picture people screaming their lungs out on the floor of a stock exchange, like they're at the Super Bowl or in a war even. And that's where people like Denise Schull step in. Denise not only wrote books about the mental challenges of those who work in finance, but has worked closely with hedge funds and even professional athletes to help them perform better under pressure and trust their gut when the going gets tough. She's joined by John Burns, who's an actual trader that sometimes has to go past his emotions in order to move millions of dollars around the stock market at exactly the right time. 
basically the fundamental mechanism of perception and judgment is what's called anticipatory affect, or we are predicting a feeling. We don't really know we're doing that. Like we're predicting everything, by the way, that's being shown to be the mechanism of the brain. Like you're predicting the next words that are going to come out of my mouth based on your knowledge of the English language. And if I said something really, you know, out of sync, you'd be like, what? It would be jarring to you. Well, now you got um, me thinking because I was just looking for a spot to jump in there and ask a question. And now I'm thinking about what I'm thinking about, what you're thinking. <laughs> we're about to go down a rabbit hole. But I, I do have a but, question, but, though. You were saying the we're anticipatory affect as in I'm predicting what I'm going to feel based on the decision yeah. I make. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Right. Okay. Continue. Sorry. And if you think about it, like any decision, I don't care what it is, you have, but, you know, someone with some pocket of expertise is using their expertise to evaluate some situation, but they don't make the decision on the data. Everyone thinks that we make the decision on the data. What actually makes you make the decision and take action is the feeling about the data either the confidence in what it means or the fear of what will happen if you don't. It's the feeling that goes along with a set of facts, you know, that causes you to take action. For like hundreds of years, I mean, like sort of since the Greek, we thought that it was the, the data. It's not. It's the feeling about the data. And none of us have been taught to like work with that side of the equation, which is the pivotal one, in any sort of organized systematic way. In fact, most of the time we're told to, well, we're told these contradictory things. Take the emotion out, but have confidence. Well, <laughs> or in the hedge fund. Yeah, or in the hedge fund world, it's take the emotion out and have conviction. Well, conviction is like an intense form of confidence, and I don't know what planet people would have to be on to say that's not an emotion. It's an emotion. I mean, conviction is a physical experience that you are right about something. That's an emotion. Yeah. And if you don't have that, you're not going to do the thing. Or you're going to do it for a different emotional reason, like you're afraid of something. And you're trying to avoid something. I mean, you've, you've just painted it there, the perfect dichotomy of, hey, don't, you know, take your feelings out of it, but back yourself, as they might say in, in sport, right? Mm-hmm. Have, you, have you actually observed changes in people's ability to do this because it's like I'm thinking to some of the sports teams that I've worked with who now have analytics departments coming out their wazoo because that's where you know particularly for the owners who are billionaire traders themselves and they back in numbers based solutions they've got analytics department to predict what this player is going to produce and this play is going to make and all that sort of business I'm hard-pressed to think of an analytics person, just even an avatar or a you know, caricature of that sort of role who would be open to changing the way they approach their data. So I'm curious to know mm-hmm. how that works in a data-driven industry. I really believe that using the Shull method, meaning recognizing patterns of thoughts and feelings that are consistent around a performance moment is the way to augment and move to further success using analytics. So I'm a baseball guy, so a baseball example is what I'll use. Why is it that X hitter struggles against 
Y picture? Well, the data says that it's true. Well, there must be a reason behind why that's the case. It, it could be arbitrary, but most likely it's not. Most likely there is some set of thought and feeling that the batter has or towards the pitcher or an experience where he his the batter's mom was at the game and he struck out with this pitcher and that repeats every time after that that he faces this hitter. It's the kind of the reason that some people always beat other people. You know, like I played a fair amount of golf and there would be uh, one guy in particular on any given day, he could beat me for sure. 50, at least 50% of the time, but in a club championship, he had zero chance. Why is that? I don't know. So my point is that using the show method, understanding these patterns of thoughts and feelings in the context of performance can help either strengthen an analytic point that is seen through the mathematical data or kind of turn around a negative point, a struggle area, uh, uh, an area that really needs to be improved. And so for me, that's why using this stuff and, and really getting down to the nitty gritty on what do I feel and why Denise's superpower, the rethink group's superpower question, uh, it could put push performance kind of to the next level. Uh, let me let me grab that. You mentioned the shell method, and I'm going to throw this to you, Denise, because it's named after you. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a, a method and a model that you've built over this many years in and around people who are making these huge high stakes decisions. It's, it's not dissimilar to the approach that performance coaches like myself may take with athletes, but there's a little difference and maybe it's just a, a thing that's assumed comes along with it. But we will ask the question often with a player of searching for good performances or potentially a bad one, but often looking for, like you say, here's a, here's a performance experience. Here's a, here's a thing that's happened. When you play well, we'll use the baseball example John just threw up. When you play well against that pitcher, what are you paying attention to? What are you feeling? It's a less controllable thing, but what are you doing? Like, and, and they're the three things. If you can identify what they are, let's just do those next time. Let's prioritize those as the things you pay attention to and the things you put first. And generally, that'll rep- give you the best chance of replicating that good performance. So it sounds similar, but we, we specifically talk about action in there as well, whereas, John, you've just mentioned thoughts and feelings. Denise, is that, am I seeing a parallel there where there's not, or is it, is it a different thing? Well, yes and no. Give me the yes and then the no. Well, the yes is when you go through your list of things, you know, forgive me for this, but you may not realize that what you're actually trying to do is create a set of feelings for that player, create a set of that they feel calmer and more confident and they have a workable strategy against this, you know, either pitcher or hitter that they've struggled against. You're trying to say you've over here, X, Y, and Z happened and over here, X, Y, and Z worked. So presumably you felt good about that. Let's port that over to this other situation. So you're trying to create a set of feelings that they can just operate. They can do what they know how to do and interrupt whatever feeling has been operating with this particular other player, you know, and wherever it came from. For that part, I 100% agree because one of the things we'll often say early on with a player is stop worrying about how you feel about this person who's got your number right now because the game doesn't give a shit how you feel. 
Like it's more about getting their attention mm-hmm. off the current feelings and shifting them to what do we want to be doing and what do we want to be paying attention to. So I think you, I think you're hundred percent right there in terms of shifting attention and trying to move them to a better place. But if you think about that, that's cognitive. You're like, you're using their cognition. You're using their ability to think you're using where they're putting their focus. What I would do is um, get underneath the feeling and basically puncture it, it, cause it to evaporate, which would end up having the same, at least the same result. So how would, you, under- how would you puncture it and cause it to evaporate? Can you like we got to get at what it's really about. Like when did, it, when did it start with this person? Oftentimes this is the easiest thing to do with an athlete. Like someone's got a, you know, we'll, we'll call it a slump in a specific circumstance. Going back to the, when that started and helping them realize what they were feeling, like, you know, was it a special game and they made a mistake and they were embarrassed or whatever? Like, I don't care. Just go back to when the situation started. Help them recognize what feelings they left that situation with and resolve those, which it's always, virtually always not as bad as they thought it was you know, situation one, whenever the scenario started. And then they just don't have the problem anymore. Like literally the feeling goes away when they go back to the beginning and then they can just easily be themselves. You are listening to Toughness. And if you're this far into the episode, there's a good chance you like the show. You can add to the conversation with the whole review, rate, subscribe, and share thing. If this helps just one person who needs to hear what our guests share to get them through today, it'll all be worth it. Stay tuned for more coming up, including... They talk about the weight of expectation, but in the elite world, I've never met anyone whose own expectations aren't far exceeding what outsiders think of them. So far in the show, we've heard some good testimonials of people who relied on their own mental endurance to perform under pressure. But what if you're part of a team and it's not just your emotions that need to be kept in check? It's way tougher to learn how to deal with, to be able to accept other people's emotions, especially in the heat of the moment. Sam Dorman and Michael Hickson are a perfect example of two very different minds that need to come together and were able to do so to achieve greatness. The two Olympic divers have a very different mental approach to their performance, and some people might think that this is a recipe for disaster, but through acceptance and emotional endurance between each other as well as within themselves, they learned how to stay in sync when it mattered the most. I think the biggest component, uh, especially for Sam and I, was trust. You know, if you're standing up there in the biggest moments and you don't trust the guy standing next to you to hit that dive in the biggest moments, you're not gonna hit the dive yourself. You're not going to feel a lot of confidence there. And I think that was the biggest thing for us in those moments. Um, in terms of interaction, it, I guess it's a little different. Um, my, my style of diving, I, I wasn't born to be a diver. My style of diving is, is very unique. And uh, I bring a lot of intensity when I compete. And I don't think many people are used to that or really want that in their game. And so Sam and I kind of did our own thing. Um, but definitely the trust was there. Sam, yeah. can you attest to that? His style of dive, he's not born to be a diver. And the style of diving, I hear the word unique, and I'm doing air quotes on the screen here. Like, <laughs> that's, that's an interesting label. How, how would you describe it as the partner? He's, he's got a fighting mentality. He's a boxer. You know, he's ready to go. He wants to win. Whereas, you know, I'm in the corner listening to John Mayer trying to chill out and, and take, <laughs> like, you know, 75, 80% because I can't go. I, I can't. If I go into fifth gear, it's just out of control. Um, interesting and so when we first started 
diving together, it, it was a very quick relationship. We started a couple months before with the trials. So the communication side of it was huge. And our very first conversation was me approaching him saying, Hey, I know you dive totally different than I do. And I don't want your way of competing to interfere with mine. So I think it's most useful if we, you know, keep it to a bare minimum. And when we get on the, get on the board, we'll come together. So we had this same one routine that we went through and we stuck to that from day one. Wow. That's super interesting, particularly as someone who works in team sports a lot to hear that come out in what's generally normally an individual sport, right? To then combine with another individual and who led you in that process is my question, which I'll come back to in a sec. But the reason I'm asking is a lot of people think, and this is in life, in business relationships, et cetera, but particularly at work uh, in high pressure events, a lot of people think we need to be friends and feel good about it, about how well we fit together, our chemistry in order to play well together. Right. Whereas the, the research in particularly in sports psychology will show that uh, social cohesion within teams is not as important as task cohesion. And what you've just described there, Sam, is the perfect example of like, we don't have to be on exact same wavelength. We don't have to be the same people, but when we step on the platform, then we've got to be in lockstep. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, did that come to you naturally? Did you know it was going to be a problem or did a coach walk you through that? I think at first it was just a, my biggest concern that, you know, cause in competition, you don't want to mess with someone else's psyche and in doing so it can really throw you off. And so I was like, look, this is, it's kind of like how it has to work because it, that's just the name of the game, your mental capacity and strength at those really heated moments when you only get six dives to do is is everything you get six tries in the span of 45 minutes you make one mistake you're out that's that's a uh and a very tight window but if you think about it on the scale of the the quad the four year span that leads up to that you get six dives in four years right that's what we're really talking about here yeah and so mike i'll throw to you as you have have done it twice and we talk about whether it's with crowds or, or away from crowds when you're up there and you have six dives and it's taken you four years even to step foot on that platform in that stadium, talk us through what's, particularly as a fighter, someone who like in the presence of pressure and stress, you like tense up and say, let's fucking go. Like how does that affect you physiologically, both in terms of your ability to do the event, but also stay in step with someone who you're supposed to do it with? Yeah, I, I, that's a really good way to think about it. I guess the biggest thing for me was always to compartmentalize. Um, so if I was in a moment where I knew it wouldn't help me to make the moment any bigger than it needed to be, I just needed to relax, I would do that. You know, the first two dives and synchronized diving of those six are very easy dives. They're compulsory. Everyone does pretty much the same dives. And so you got to stay pretty calm in those moments. But when you're in the last round and you're on a front four and a half and you need a little bit of gas, I'm, I'm all of a sudden my brain's turned on, I'm locked in and I'm ready to go. And, you know, if you watch my reaction after we hit that dive in Rio, I mean, that is the way I felt. That was completely natural. You're just fired up. And I don't know, I think, I think being able to compartmentalize each dive and not let anything get too big is, is the easiest way to make sure that your emotions and your adrenaline is where it needs to be. Yeah. Both of you have described both your own and each other's, you know, ideal 
psych state mm-hmm. as both for yourself personally, but also saying like in this event, you know, when we have six dives and there's only this very small window, 45 minutes, four years coming together in that moment. At what point do you think in your journey from a kid who threw himself off the edge of a pool at one point to Olympic diver, did you become aware of like managing this part of our game is super important? I can't just get up there and because I've got like the athletic ability to do it. There's a lot that's that's mental to this game. Where did you, each of either of you, can take this to start? Like, when did you first realize that? Um, I was really late, honestly. It was probably 2013 when I started. I, that was my first inter- international competition in 2013. Um, it was a Grand Prix, and that's when things really took off and it it moved very quick. Um, and I had to just, you know, I didn't really have a choice. I just had to roll with it if I wanted to get better. And so how does how does an Olympic diver who ends up getting a silver medal three years later, like that's the, and only you only really got serious about it three years beforehand or were you like diving for fun and then it got serious? What, what happened for you? It was serious. You know, I competed in the 2012 Olympic trials. So I knew like it was, it was, I had ability um in 2013 that's when i started doing more synchro and that picked up and then i started doing synchro with other partners and then it started to really move quick and i think doing the synchro because i didn't do a whole lot of synchro up until you know 2012 i I was just getting the hang of it and starting it so there wasn't a whole lot that i had been doing right Mike, how about you? Where, at what point did you realize, and, and you've already mentioned, like you know you have to put on the gas a little bit when the, when the going gets tough. Is that something you picked up just from diving or are you actually a literal boxer, as Sam described you metaphorically, like were you a fighter before you go into diving? You know, the first thing I want to say about Sam that I think is really interesting, um, you know, we'd have conversations even after the Olympics. Be like, yeah, you know, I'm not a very good competitor. And I'd be like, all right, well, there's – to me, the three highest pressure meets in the world are World Cup to qualify your spot for the Olympics, Olympic trials to qualify yourself to the Olympics, and the Olympic Games because it's the Olympics. This guy stood up at all three of those meets and delivered. And so I don't want to hear that you're not a great competitor. And I think people put into a box, you know, if you don't approach it in an aggressive way and you don't say, like, I'm taking on this moment every time. And, you know, if you're a little bit more like Sam has listened to John Mayer, I think people define you maybe as someone who's not a great competitor. And, that's bullshit. You know, everyone does a little differently, but if you can find a way to deliver in the moment, I think that makes you a great competitor. And that was something I always admired about Sam and his understanding of himself to get to that point. As you can see, even if you're an elite athlete and have a whole team of specialists supporting you, it still comes down to you when you have to deal with unpredictable stuff, whether that's a bad position during a competition or an unpredictable teammate in the locker room. It's great to keep in mind when you might be having conflict at home or maybe in your office and things aren't that great either. Now, when we talk about Olympic athletes, one thing that's true is that they have this huge weight on their shoulders, preparing for four years to have one shot at glory. And they have an entire nation that wants them to perform at that exact moment. And someone who knows about this weight, but in a different context, is a guy by the name of Cody Royal, who's best known as the coach of head coaches, renowned around the world for studying the mental aspects that form a good leader, particularly of professional sports teams. He's written two books on the matter, and the topic that always pops up is The Weight, which is the unspoken pressure that we put on ourselves based on other people's opinions and demands. 
the way that I describe it is, you know, people have this concept of, of leadership and expectation. They, they talk about the weight of expectation. But in the elite world, I've never met anyone whose own expectations aren't far exceeding what outsiders think of them. And so I, I don't subscribe to that as like the core idea. The, the weight for me is the emotional weight of caring about people and caring about your role in their development. And so it's really interesting because you're spot on there, Patty. Like the story that sticks out to me is from Dan Quinn. And Dan... So Dan, for those who don't know, former head coach of the Atlanta Falcons in the NFL, current defensive coordinator for the Cowboys maybe. Yep, still there. And hadn't been a head coach at any level. So, you know, he jokes he'd never even called a timeout until the NFL. And he said to me, when I asked him what the difference was, like when you were paying attention to how things changed when you're a head coach, what were some of the instances of that? And he said, there's a couple One, your relationship with your staff changes because now their whole livelihoods are tied to your success. He's like, there is nothing like that. Defensive coordinator is a big job. It's a prestigious job. You're on television, all these kind of things. When everyone's kids are now in private school and they're tied to your success, that is a weight that manifests so many times over. And when you start to fail when you lose a Super Bowl from 28-3 up, that's what comes up for you. It's this expect, It's not the expectation, it's the caring. And the other thing that he said to me is the thing that changes is immediately just by a job title, now everyone in the building treats you differently. And so he said the biggest realisation for him was that whoever walked through his office door, that 10 minutes that they spent together, that might be, the most important 10 minutes in that person's day. And they might've actually had a sleepless night worrying about shit. I've got to walk into DQ's office tomorrow and give him some bad news. Right. And so it might just feel like another 10 minutes, but to that person talking to the Hefe, the gaffer, the coach, like that is huge. And you don't have that in other situations. And so I think it's a, really important point. Frank Lampard talked about it. Steven Gerrard talked about it. All of these players that are coming out think they know what coaching is. And then you you dig around in their interviews and they are all talking about it. It is different. Brendan Rogers has talked about it. It is a different lens that you are viewed under. And the reason the weight works is because you physically manifest a weight on your shoulders. That's that phrase, right? That was one of the things that I would say was a bit of a surprise for me the first time I experienced it when I went from being a coach within a system to being the head of, not even the head of the entire performance department, but the head of mental performance. So I had other coaches underneath me. I was responsible for 200 plus athletes, 60 odd staff. This is with the Toronto Blue Jays is about the time that you and I met and so it was serendipitous that we crossed paths at that time because I was feeling the weight but didn't really know it. I know that my health was suffering. I know that my sleep was definitely suffering. But tell us about some other things that could be signs for people that they're actually experiencing the weight, but it's, it's kind of hard to put in into words. Like when someone says, how's your job going? And you're like, ah, oh, like everyone thinks it's awesome, but I don't even know where to start in terms of how overwhelming it was at that point when you and I met. 
it was kind of hard to describe and still is in sometimes because it's hard to put into words the overwhelm, right, which is, a, I guess, a symptom of the weight. But what other things show up for people that could be early indicators that maybe they're dealing with stuff there? They, didn't, they don't even know they're under that level of duress until sometimes it's too late. Yeah, I mean, you've kind of described probably the key one, this feeling of being stuck, like not knowing even where to start, which, you know, when you take a step back and you look at, just to use your example, because I know you, you are a highly skilled, highly experienced practitioner who should know where to start, right? Like you've got all the tools to know where in the bathroom when you're doing the renovation to go and, and start chipping away at the tiles first, right? But there's this weight kind of detracts from your ability to, you know, have access to that experience, to have access to that talent. And it actually becomes a source of frustration because you don't know where to start and you don't know how to kind of push through some of the barriers that you're facing. That's a majority of my work right now. And so that manifests in people who should be able to make decisions can't or they make bad decisions? Like what's the, how does it show up? Yeah, both. So a feeling of that you don't know how to progress. Behaviour change in that you start to become more flippant, more aggressive. You know, you start to deal with situations badly because you're in this state of depletion. And so the way I I describe it in coaching is, right, like your primary coaching skills are are awareness, communication, and decision-making. Any coach anywhere in the world, track and field, NFL, doesn't matter. Those are the three things. Now, awareness, communication, and decision-making. Right. You can deploy them in any situation. And the three things that probably most rapidly deplete when you are in a state of exhaustion are your awareness, your communication, and your decision-making. And so this is like getting into neuroscience territory, but I think there's enough evidence now to suggest that, that that is undoubtedly true. And so when you start to see signs around those things, you can't find words. You're making poor decisions and are digging yourself into a, a hole. You're actually paying attention to the wrong things or you, you lack focus. That's a majority of my work now is, is finding ways to free up coaches so that they can get better access to those three primary skills. Uh, because the, think, you know this better than most, Patty. Think of the knock-on effect down to the players, right? Like if you're lacking in your awareness, communication, and decision-making, how poorly are you coaching them? Like their development is severely hampered by the fact that you can't sleep, you feel like you have this ton of bricks on your shoulder, shoulders and, and you can't cut through the political red tape of the organisation and you just feel stuck and blah. It's remarkable how consistent that challenge is across the elite sporting landscape. So that's our special compilation episode on emotional endurance. And the one thing that I hope you take away after hearing all of this from a bunch of different people is that emotional endurance is a crucial trait of developing a tough mindset and working in unpredictable environments. If you want to do great things, you're definitely going to have some sweaty palm moments as we talk about them on the show. And how you manage yourself and your emotions in the midst of chaos can sometimes be the difference between making or breaking. 
whenever you feel like you don't have control over things, maybe think of one of these examples where oftentimes it's not about feeling good, but more about accepting the fact that this feeling comes along with what you're trying to do. And it's up to you if you allow them to bring you down or not. Stay tuned for these upcoming weeks as we go further on our mission to explore the pillars of toughness. Until then, stay tough. So what is it got to be so damn tough? Uh, excellent, bustin' with the best of them. Simply impressive, no worry and stressin' uh, I'm getting my right now. Put your shades on and let me show you how. Yeah.